You're tuned into the Vel News Podcast. I'm Fred Dreyer here in Boulder, Colorado. I'm joined, as always, by Spencer Paulison. Hello, hey, Spencer. How's it going, Fred? I'm doing great. And we are joined digitally this week by Dane Cash, who is in Washington, D.C., but is peeking at me through the Skype window right now. Hello, Dane. It's magical, the things the internet allows us to do nowadays. I know. The internet allows us to do great things like share our thoughts via social media, record all of our fitness via these tracking apps like Strava, but oh, wait, wait, maybe we actually don't want the world to be looking at all of our movements. Um, guys, did you see the story in the New York Times, the Washington Post about how Strava may ha- may or may not have tipped off the world to the location of like double secret, top secret bases in the middle of the desert? And I It's thought, the latest security threat. Yeah, yeah, and I thought I was worried about my secret mountain bike trails getting discovered on Strava heat maps. This seems like a whole nother level of, of like kind of being worried about someone's Strava stalking you. Yeah. I was worried that someone might find out where I lived and come and pepper my house with like rotten eggs or something. But, um, you know, to our friends overseas in the military who may be listening to the Velo News podcast this week, put, just flick that, uh, flick that Strava dial to, um, what is it? To, to confidential, well, so to here's, locked. So here's the problem, Fred, is that that's actually not enough to oh, no. keep your activities off of the heat maps. You have to go into your settings uh-huh. and then choose to, the option to say, don't use any of my data for Strava heat maps. Because even if it is a private activity, right. it would still show up on those global heat maps that kind of aggregate all the activities. And it's a really cool feature, honestly, because it's like you look at your town and you're like, oh, yeah, everybody likes to ride this climb or whatever. And yeah, if you're at the Bagram Air Force Base, you're like, oh, yeah. oh secret base counterclockwise loop yeah. seems to be really popular this month. Yeah, Lieutenant Dan has the uh, KOM on that still, I think. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, that was an interesting sort of cycling themed story to get into the news. Uh, the other one that popped into our, stra- our, our Twitter feeds today was this amazing video of a couple riding their bikes in Australia on Australia Day, which apparently is a thing, and this kangaroo just bounds out of nowhere and, oh my gosh, just attacks the woman. Luckily, we found out via the YouTube comment, uh, we were riding in the Buna region, Rebecca suffered a subluxation of the AC right shoulder. That Ooh, that must be Australian. I don't understand. I don't know. That, that is, sounds yeah. painful. And a laceration on her left knee, but had a good laugh about it. Anyway, kangaroos attacking cyclists. Dane, the other week we watched the guys at the Tour Down Under with these baby kangaroos. Now we see kangaroos attacking cyclists. What is going on here? Well, I think they only come out and, and you know act nice for World Tour racing. And so as soon as the World Tour riders are gone, it's back to you know Wild West out there. Oh, so, so you think that these are like um, discerning cycling fan kangaroos? Yeah, if you're not Peter Sagan, they don't, they're not going to be nice to you. They're going to go after you, you know? Bandwagon fans. And also of note, many high-end cycling shoes made from kangaroo leather. Just connecting some, the dots on that one, you know? It's kind oh, of a... Jeez. They're smarter than we think. Problematic. Um, but we're glad to hear that Rebecca's okay and get well soon with Ye- that subluxation or whatever that means. I don't, it sounds bad. That does. Sound you don't want to mess up, mess those AC joints in your shoulders. And don't mess with kangaroos, people. So we have a good, uh, good show coming up this week. We're going to be breaking down some of the action uh, on the cyclocross circuit from the final World Cup that happened in Hoogerheide this past weekend. And we'll be pre- previewing the World Championships coming up in Valkenburg 
big old world championships, a lot riding on this world's really exciting race going to be happening in the women's side. On the men's side, we're all going to be watching uh, Matthew Vanderpool. Uh, then we have to get to what happened in the world of road racing. Not a ton of giant races, but there was some good action going on. The Cadell Evans Great Ocean Road Race, the Tour de San Juan, and then lots of racing going on over the Mallorca Challenge. And boy, the Trek Segafredo team, just, just killing it, crushing it, having the best week ever. So let's get into it, guys. World Cup, Hoogerheide. It was, a, it was the final World Cup of the year. It looked to be muddy. There was some gnarly off-camber section. Uh, and this race provided us with one of the scariest crash videos I've seen in a long time from World Cup road racing. And that was in the women's race. And it was a scary crash that happened between Pauline ferran Provo and Yolanda Neff. They're coming into this off-camber section. And they just, it looks like Ferran Provo, Neff is going for the pass, PFP loses it, comes into her, and then they both just slam to the ground. It's a really scary moment, but luckily, um, it, it, both of them escaped without super major injuries. Y- Yolanda well, Neff is pretty bad. Yeah, up. actually, you know. Sure, Paul, season is done. Yeah, Ferran Provo definitely is fortunate to be able to continue and race Worlds this next weekend. Yolanda Neff, unfortunately, out with a broken collarbone and a broken elbow. The elbow is probably the worst of the two, to be honest. And uh, that means she will miss World Championships of Cyclocross. And also, she's going to miss the start of her mountain bike season because she's a top pro mountain bike racer as well. So she won't be going to the Cape Epic in South Africa, which is unfortunate. That's a it's a big tune-up race for the top pro cross-country mountain bike racers. And uh, that was a heinous crash. Yeah, it was, it was a weird one because you could tell uh, Yolanda Neff a little more comfortable on the high speed descents off cambers, just given her mountain bike skills. I, I would imagine she was getting a little impatient behind Fran Prevost, tried to maybe squeak by in a place where she shouldn't have, and there just wasn't any room for error there, and they collided. And it was it was an auger. I would call that one an auger. So one thing that stands out to me from this crash, though, is so these women crash extremely hard. I mean, it just looks violent and awful. Um, we now know that Yolanda Neff was in an extreme amount of pain with those injuries. You could hear it on the broadcast. It Yet, was kind of gross. The honestly. first thing she does is crawl over to PFP to make sure she's okay. And these women are like making sure that the other one is okay after a crash like this. And, I, you know, it's kind of one of those moments where you're, you, you watch something in pro psych and they're like, wow, that is, that is pretty amazing, you know, to have that much compassion and feeling for your competitor, especially a competitor where, let's face it, if that person wasn't there, you probably wouldn't have crashed. And to offer that kind of a support. Um, after the race, Yolanda Neff went on her Instagram page and updated the world about her injuries. You know, she'll be missing worlds. And, um, you know, she has this broken heart. But then she says, Pauline Fervent Provost didn't get injured. I'm so glad hurting myself is one thing, but I could never forgive myself to hurt someone else. Um, so, you know, chapeau to both of these women, yeah. racing really hard, suffering a really bad mishap, but, mishap, but having the presence of mind to, um, you know, have a pretty, pretty healthy perspective on it. Yeah, it's really, really sport, good sportswomanship, I, I should say. Yep. It's sportsmanship. It, it's, uh, you know, there is a bond, I think, between a lot of these top riders, pretty much at all levels. You know, we hear about how after the men's races, Wout Van Aert will be the first one to congratulate Matthew Vanderpool if he's been beaten, which is often the case this season. You know, the, <laughs> there's a bond there, I think, uh, across the board, men's and women's racing. And it's a small sport. It's tightly knit. And they see each other every weekend, pretty much. So it, it's nice to see. Man, 
man, I feel like I could learn something like that for the old Vellum News lunch ride yeah, dispenser. Fred, and you drop really, me, I yeah, usually yeah. just start sh- just screaming expletives yeah, you're, at you. You're not checking to see if I'm okay. Yeah, no, not at all. Very true. So in the women's race, Sana Kant went on to win. She won the series, won the World Cup overall. But behind our countrywoman, Katie Keogh, um, finished, I believe, fourth place. And that was good enough to tie up second place in the World Cup overall, which is a huge result for Katie Keogh. You know, we still think of her as a rider who is on her way up. She is young. She's improving every season. She took to Instagram afterwards, second in the World Cup overall. Thank you to my support system. Thank her sponsors. Congrats. You could tell she's psyched about this. And she should be. It's a real breakthrough season for her at the international level this year. Great results. She was second last weekend in the Nome World Cup, as we discussed on the last podcast. I think everyone should be watching for Katie Keogh to make an impact on world championships. Maybe maybe she's a little bit of a dark horse for a medal, but I would expect to see her ride into the top 10, which would be huge. Uh, and also, for that matter, she deserves a lot of credit for the way she raced that Hooger Heide World Cup because she didn't ex- exactly have it handed to her on a, on a silver platter. She certainly... Um, you know, benefited from Pauline Ferrand-Provot and Yolanda Neff crashing out. But it was a difficult first half of the race for her and for a lot of the women just because of this wacky start that this race has where it goes up the road, everything's fairly well bunched together, and then they take a sharp turn onto this steep overpass. And it's just kind of a stupid course design, honestly, because it balls up the race. You saw in both the women's and men's race, there was basically a crash on this ramp because you know people couldn't get over it with enough momentum, and it, and it was just the accordion effect. And uh, I was, you know, I was told that this is a, a course feature to allow for more smooth uh, traffic flow of the spectators, actually, to get from one point of the course to the other, or maybe it's one beer garden to the other. I'm not sure. Either way, it's just kind of it's really unfortunate that this course design went through and that the UCI greenlit it, you know, when it, when it ended up affecting the race pretty significantly, you saw a number of top riders get stuck behind crashes. And certainly if you were in the first three to five riders over the top of that ramp, you were guaranteed to have a big advantage over anyone who was behind because they were getting, you know, caught up by people putting a foot down or, or, or worse, you know, so. All in the service of a bunch of cross fans wanting to like, get to the restroom or get more beer. Hey, at least they have fans, you know, you know, that's, uh, that's, <laughs> that's something, true. but, uh, yeah, you know, speaking of that, Katie Compton was one of the riders who's caught behind that crash. Yep. Um, unfortunately, unlike Keo Compton really had a rough day. She had a flat tire on that first lap. In addition to the, to the holdup on the bridge, she also told me that she had a bit of an asthma attack later in the race went a little too deep trying to claw her way back into the front. At one point, she was with Keo riding around that fifth-place position, give or take. Rough outing for her. She's, she's told me she's has always had, had trouble putting it together in Hoogerheide. And, uh, yes. yeah, well, hopefully for American Cyclocross fans, she gets it out of her way this past weekend and will be good to go for Worlds. Well, we'll talk about that in a couple minutes here, previewing Worlds. But, yeah, you know, Compton, to, uh, her husband took to Twitter to say, you know, she slipped the pedal I mean, it just sounds like she was kind of torpedoed from the gun on that end. What about the men's race? I mean, this is another Vander, all Vanderpool all the day. It was ridiculous. You see him ride those descents. It's, yeah. It's just scary how fast he's riding them. And um, even, even comparing him to the rest of the men's field, you know, it's just like 
he is noticeably faster on those really wild off cambers and, and he's just straight lining these things that no one else is able to completely do. Well, and that's something to be said about Vanderpool. You know, we give him so much credit for his legs for being so much stronger than the other men in the field. But on a course like this, it really is evident that it's the descending where he has an advantage too. I mean, he seems to approach these descents like like the just send it guy, oh, you yeah. know, from Jerry like the, day, the yeah. Jerry of the day, yeah. where it's just, just grip it and rip it. And yet he seems to be in perfect control. I love his racing style. I think he's, he's got just, he just goes all out. And sometimes you see him come to grief, I've, especially in before this season, this season, he seems to always be on it. But in years past, he's had some pretty spectacular crashes and endos just because he is entirely fearless and willing to just go to the complete ragged edge of control. And, uh, I really like that. I just wish there was someone to challenge him because let's face it, that men's race was pretty boring to watch. At least for me, I thought there was a battle for third place, but otherwise is it was, it was uh, the old dirt time trial. Am I right? Dane cash. That's your, yeah. Uh, sounds about, sounds about right. Sounds like cyclocross. Dane, yeah. The Dane Cash's uh, <laughs> patented dirt time trial. Hot take. I really take. should trademark make, that. Make yeah. that a series. We could do a series of races. The Dane cash series. Well, I guess that's a good segue into this coming weekend's action, which is the World Championships from Falkenberg, the Netherlands. It's a hilly course. There's off-camber. There's a long run-up. There's not. I, I wouldn't say there's a defining feature of the course, like the sand at Coxida or the mud at Nome. But, I mean, if it rains, then we'll have a plenty of mud. Yeah, but, we'll see. You know, on the men's side, what is um, hanging in the balance for Mr. Vanderpool is the potential for one of the most dominant men's cyclocross campaigns ever. We were talking about this before we turned on the microphone. And, you know, Vanderpool has won the World Cup handily. He could win the World Championships. I believe he's won the DVV Trophy as well. So he's won the, the major series. The last time we had a guy win Worlds and World Cup the same year, that was Stebar, correct? That's right. Zdenek Stebar, he uh, won the 2010 World Championships in his hometown, or, well, his home country, rather, yep. Czech, Czech Republic, and he won the World Cup leading into that. Also, the Super Prestige. Uh, now, the thing you can say about Zdenek Stebar in that uh, that season was he he didn't, like, completely blow away the competition at the World Cups like Matthew Vanderpool did this season. Stebar won... He won two of the super prestiges, and he uh, and he won three of the World Cups, which is obviously huge. Right. But it's not like Vanderpool, who this season I believe has won eight World Cups. I think he's 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 clearly the dominant rider in the World Cup, no question. Right. And so when we think about one of the most dominant seasons ever throughout the year, culminating with the World Championships. It always brings up that talking point about Worlds versus World Cup, which is um, who, you know, if you are consistently strong throughout the World Cup, are you at a disadvantage for the World Championships because other guys have potentially been resting or basically like storing up bullets in their gun for that one race? This was always the Sven Ness argument because Sven Ness would dominate the World Cup. He would be consistently strong throughout the season. And then Worlds would come up and like Vervecken would kick his butt or Lars Bohm would come out of nowhere and just blow him away. I don't see that happening this year. I don't either, and um, I should correct myself. He, Vanderpool's won six World Cups, so oh, you know, okay. really, uh, yeah, really wow, letting it slide. <laughs> Not an impressive season. I think my my take on this, Fred, is that the elite men's cross field at the world the World Cup level is not as deep and competitive as it used to be. 
Uh, you look back to the time when Sven Nice was racing. You look back to the time when Denix Debar was racing. You saw much more variation in who was winning the big races week in and week out. Uh, and I just don't think that we quite have that level of competition for the podium this you know this season. And for whatever reason, it's it's unfortunate. It means the races aren't as exciting to watch. But uh, Vanderpool, a true talent, absolutely amazing rider. But if you could imagine. Stebar sticking around, Lars Bohm sticking around and still being racing at this point, uh, I think it might be harder for him to do this, to dominate the World Cup and then go on to at least potentially, knock on wood, win world championships. Or not knock on wood if you don't want him to win. I don't know. It's up to you. Well, we can contrast that predictability on the men's end with the women's end. Exactly. And, you know, we've said this multiple times on this podcast, women's cyclocross racing is where it is at. Because it just seems like there are anywhere between three to five women who could win a World Cup on any given day, on any given course. You know, you have to say that Sana Khan is the favorite. She's been the most consistently strong winning the World Cup overall. But, you know, cyclocross is such a, it's such a competition of overcoming challenges and overcoming problems. Every, you know, there's no such thing as a perfect cross race. There's always slipped pedals and crashes and slips in mud. And that's where I feel like the women's race is going to be so much more interesting because I just don't see a scenario in which any one rider rides away from the field. Much less margin for error, definitely, because there are three to five riders easily in contention for the podium. I think that Kant could ride away from the field. Ooh. I think, as, as, as Spencer notes, though, there is less margin for error than in the men's side. And also, just with cyclocross, the way it tends to go, just because she could ride away from the field doesn't mean she will, because she could have that slip pedal. She could have that crash. I think talent-wise, though, I think there are one or two riders who, are, who, if they had a perfect race, would probably do significantly better than some of the other girls if they had a perfect race. So that, it just kind of depends. And, and those perfect races don't really exist, is, is the thing. That's very true. And it, it is rare. I, ha, having Watching that Hoover Heider World Cup yesterday, on, on Sunday, I should say, you could see the difference between Sonicant and Eva Lechner. Uh, Eva Lechner, the, the Italian cyclocross champion, top uh, mountain bike pro racer, and you could tell Sonicant had another gear when, when it got on those kind of gradual uphills, the steeper climbs, even just out of a corner. You could see Sonicant had a little more acceleration than Lechner did. And, uh, you know, there's not a whole lot of... Uh, maybe Katie Compton on her best day would, would be there in the mix as well. Occasionally, Helen Wyman's there too. He Helen Wyman also had a really rough going at yep. Hoogerheit. I'm not entirely sure what happened to her there, but um, also unfortunate to see her drop out of it. Um, and then, you know, for our other favorites that we have kind of on our, on our list to watch, uh, Mariana Voss, former world champion. She knows how to do it. It's just a matter of whether the legs are there. I, I'm not really sure I've yet to see that out of her this cross season. Uh, I guess that's kind of a nostalgia pick there. One of the points that, you know, was raised earlier when Fred brought this up to start the conversation was sort of the likelihood of people kind of coming out of nowhere for Worlds. And I think that does happen a fair bit. And if there anybody could do it, um, Mariana Voss is, is one to do it. I mean, yeah, we haven't seen a whole lot from her, but she's done it before where she's just kind of, oh, hey, I'm, I'm Mariana Voss. Don't forget, I'm going to win this race real quick. So yeah. I, I think it's possible. Very true, Dane. I definitely agree. And also... Mariana Voss will be racing on home turf in the Netherlands, which potentially is additional motivation. And then, um, you know, you could also say Pauline ferrand Prevot could be there at the end as well. She's also a former world champ and similar in similar fashion, actually. She won her cross world's title in 2015, where she was not really very active throughout the main part of the cyclocross season, even to the point where Asana Kant kind of 
got a little snippy about it at one point, I believe, just being a little disappointed that someone could come out of the woodwork like that and dethrone her. But uh, Ferran Prevost knows how to peak as well. Yeah, Dean, I'm with you with Mariana Vaz because I I remember last season, you know, Mariana Vaz had an okay second half of the season. But when it came to Worlds, she's just, she has the clutch jeans. She wears clutch jeans. Ooh, nice. Yeah, clutch jeans. <laughs> and she just knows how are those, to. Are those Rafa? I think those, those are Jinkos. Those Ra- oh, okay. <laughs> Jinko clutch jeans. And, you know, Sonicant ended up beating her with a last second attack through a really tricky section. But she went blow for blow with Sonicant throughout that whole race. Including in sections where I I thought anyway it was very obvious that Sonicant was the stronger rider, but it was Mariana Vos who was sitting on her and clawing her way back and using her incredible just just skills and brain and like cunning to be able to keep her in that race. So, that was a great race. Yeah. Sidebar and and also exciting to watch friend of the show, Katarina Nash, riding into the podium there and yeah. coming pretty close, really. And it was that was a good one. I hope for another one of those Well, I think we Saturday. should we should add friend of the podcast, Katarina Nash, to our list of potential favorites. Yeah, uh, put you her know, in there. Let's put her in there. So Sonic Kant, Marina Navas, Listen to Brand, PFP, Ava Lechner, Katie Compton. I'm also curious how Fran Prevost is going to be after that crash. I yeah. mean, I know she said she didn't have any major injuries, but... If you watch that crash, you see she hit her head pretty hard. And yep. so did so did Yolanda Neff, for that matter. And uh, I guess I'm a little worried. I don't know if they actually check for that sort of thing at those races, concussions and that sort of thing. I, I hope not. I hope I hope they're all right. And I hope they are checked out thoroughly. But you, you just don't know. Yeah, again, we don't want to see anything like that in Valkenberg. Well, it's the UCI World Championships. It's coming up this weekend. We're going to be watching... And we'll have lots of analysis, race reports, takes, interviews on the site afterward. So we also had some road racing going on this week. Uh, most notably, the Cadell Evans, the Great Ocean Road Race, the, the ocean race of greatness. Dane, break down for me what happened in these races you watched both of the you you probably stayed up to like 4 a.m australia watching australian tv to, to get the lowdown right let's let's you know let's not say that i watched the whole thing but i said you know but the very end where the where the action happened uh, the, the most important thing about these races i think for everybody to know is is I think the the deception needs to stop. They don't really race along the ocean, and people people need to know that. There's something there's something wrong about calling your race the Great Ocean Road Race when you're there for like uh, it's like ten minutes along the ocean. It's it's I don't know what I don't know why they need to be deceptive about it. But calling it the Great Kangaroo Attack Road Race just doesn't have the same ring I, to I it. I don't I'd, I'd watch that, but mm. yeah, mm. yeah. Uh, I feel so, duped. I feel duped. <laughs> So this is this is a world tour race and and it's the second world tour race in the calendar. It's only recently been bumped up to that. Well, it's a, only recently existed, but uh, in in both races we saw sort of a reduced sprint at the end there uh, on the women's side. Uh, the very fast Chloe Hosking was hoping to make it over uh, the the tough climb towards the end and and still be there in the finish. Uh, that was not a guarantee, but I think the thought was that if she's there, she's going to win, and that's exactly what happened. She made it to the to the sprint finish. And then uh, on the men's side, there was some action towards the end. There was an uh, attempt to sort of split things up. Um, and uh, Jay McCarthy of Bora Hansgrohe, uh, local boy, Australian rider, 25-year-old, uh, gets into that late move with a number of other big guns. Uh, the move gets reeled back in 
And then McCarthy goes on and out sprints Elia Viviani, of all people, who is a very fast finisher uh, and uh, who, who I think was pretty interested in winning this race because it is a world tour race. And I think he was definitely the sprinter to beat. And Jay McCarthy, of all people, who's definitely noted more for his climbing than his uh, finishing kick, was the one to do it. I mean, it's obviously a different story at the end of a long one-day race with uh, some some climbing thrown in. But still very impressive for McCarthy to do this. And and I think um, for, for both McCarthy and for Hosking, there's uh, there's an, a, a sort of this element of finally getting that, getting that big win uh, and getting it early this season, which is good for them. I, I know Hosking, extremely talented, very fast sprinter, but the, the actual the big wins she's a little short on those and for McCarthy this is I think only his first like UCI or sorry second UCI level win he won a stage at down under in 2016 and and this is obviously the biggest one of his career in that it's a world tour one day so good news for him and he's still pretty young so I think bright future for for McCarthy yeah I agree that's uh he's 25 now so I'm I'm excited to see where he goes with it and it's funny because I remember a few years ago it's sort of like the old uh NPR first mentioned segment thing where they go back in the archives and try and remember when they first talked about like the Apple iPhone or whatever. I remember, I remember our old friend Aaron Lee, who used to be a web editor here at Velo News, works for Eurosport, doing a story on Jay McCarthy from I think one of the one of the sort of mid-level UCI Asia tour races and just like pointing out that he's such a strong climber, such a rider to watch. And I agree, Dane, it's kind of surprising to see him win a sprint like this. And it does point to his versatility. And to me, this kind of sounds like the type of guy who might be a threat for the Ardennes. Yeah, definitely. That, that's the sort of rider you want uh, kind of leading your team. Somebody who can climb and then at the end of it can, uh, can sprint because that's exactly what Alejandro Valverde is going to be waiting to do. So you might as well have those abilities uh, you know, in your back pocket. So, Dane, on paper, Viviani is obviously the faster man in this lineup uh, against a guy like Jay. So is this a case of uh, Jay just being like Jay McCarthy being so much stronger than him in this moment? Or was uh, Viviani just, I don't know, bad positioning or whatever? Why, why do you think Jay McCarthy was able to outsprint Ella Viviani, the man on paper who is much faster than him? I think it's a little bit of everything. I think the the fact that this is a one day race with a climb that helps. I mean, it's not like uh, it's not like they're racing in Qatar and it's 150 flat kilometers and then a sprint. Uh, and then yeah, it's Australia. It's January. I, I think Elia Viviani did want to win this race, but both down under and uh, and the Sea Gore. I think they both kind of suffer from this a little bit, which is this sort of. Yeah, the Aussies are going to be on form here. They just had their national championships. They're going to be way more interested in winning these races. And actually, I kind of wonder if you're the director of uh, of a Seagor or a Tour Down Under, are you going to want an Australian winner to make your local fans happy or an international winner so that the rest of the international peloton stops saying things like, well, only the Australian riders care about these races. So I think it's a tough call either way. Yeah, you know, I don't think that uh, McCarthy's going to be beating Marcel Kittle in a sprint anytime soon. He's not going to win any green jerseys at the Tour de France in the next couple of years. But I think it is important to get these wins, and it's important to show your versatility like this. We thought he was just a climber. Now we know he's got some sprint legs, and, you know, he's got maybe the ability to win this sort of punchy, uh, uh, maybe with a one-day race um, with that skill set like that, you can go on to contend in the Ardennes. Who knows? Yeah, Dane, I'm with you. It is just a, just awesome to be able to get results like that, especially this time of year. Even if you are Australian dominating in your home country, it still counts because it's January. So it's a great time to like cut through the clutter and get your name out there when you do get results. 
And when I think about that, the team that did that this past week is Trek Sigafredo. Trek, Trek Sigafredo had like the best week ever. They won five bike races. They won two stages of the Tour de San Juan down in Argentina. And then they won three races at the Mallorca Challenge with John Degenkolb winning two sprint stages. I mean, is John Degenkolb back? Can we say with authority that Degenkizzy is off the hizzy for 2018? Well, I chatted with John Degenkolb just a, a, a few days ago, and uh, he certainly, most riders will tell you that they're feeling great, they're feeling strong. But with Degenkolb, there's a little more to it because he's been coming back from injury or sickness for so long. He's had two years of just health issues derailing his season. And I really got the sense when I chatted with him uh, that there was an honesty there and that he was finally starting to get back into the groove and that I think he was done with distractions. He'd had a lot of distractions and, and he felt like he was really getting back to training. And that's really important. And I think he proved it. I mean, he, he, it's not like Mallorca is the biggest race in the world, but he's certainly going up against some talented guys there. And to go get your wins this early in the season, especially if you're John Dakenkolb and you have the huge monkey on your back of of not winning in a while, I think that's really big for your confidence and also just generally shows that you're in good shape. I, I'm with you, Dane. You know, I was at the Classics this past year and I was on the Trek beat going to the Trek bus after, you know, Gent Wevelgem and Tour of Flanders and some of these big cobble races, the races where John Tegenkolb was supposed to be doing well at. And you could tell that there was a, there was a real kind of a bummer vibe around the team because he wasn't performing where he needed to be. And the team between him and Jasper Stuyven, they would always be in it at the finale and then they just wouldn't be there. And you could tell it was really weighing on him. I had a chat with him where he was, he was a little bit defensive. And it's funny, an image from that interview actually is on his Instagram page. I'm like, hey, man, I made John Tegenkolb's uh, gram. All right, here I am. That's huge. But uh, to be able to start the season off with two big wins like this, really, I got to figure, sets you in the mindset for uh, for having a good spring campaign. But um, the other, the other uh, performance that we have to talk about, Tom Scoinch, friend of the podcast, um, winning this breakaway day at the Mallorca Challenge. You know, Tom's, he's a guy who has made his name with these long breakaways. He's a very strong rider, but very smart in that he, he can look at a stage profile, I feel like, and know that it's perfect to go on the breakaway. And, you know, as we know with breakaways, they don't always work out. So to be able to win in this fashion, I, I don't care if it's January. That's a huge result for a guy like Tom's. And I'd say... It- breakaways actually rarely work out for that matter. And Tom's really uh, nice to see him do well because he is in his first year on Trek Segafredo. He moved over from the Cannondale team, which is now EF Education First. So you got to think that's a really nice feeling to show up on the first day at the job and really knock it out of the park. If you're EF Education First, you got to be kicking yourself this week because you let Tom Scoinch walk in the offseason. You let Ryan Mullen go, huge talent go. And there they go winning bike races like the first week of the year after not really doing a whole lot with EF. So I think that just probably really hurts the morale of anybody making the decisions over at EF and certainly makes the Trek organization look good that they could pick up two guys like that who weren't winning and suddenly, boom, they're out there winning bike races. Yeah, I got to think that's tough to see. And, um, very nice segue, Dane, because I actually got a chance to talk to Tom Squinch about this sort of thing. I caught up with him before the holidays, and we sat down for a little interview, and that was one of the things we did discuss. And of course, as we all know, the Cannondale team, the Slipstream organization, nearly was no more last year when a sponsor fell through, and that was partly why 
Toms went to Trek and actually didn't have a ton of options. And it was a little bit touch and go whether he'd remain on a world tour team. So got that interview queued up for everyone. And uh, it's, uh, we talk about a variety of things. We talk about his background uh, coming up through continental teams in France, which I think helps him have that sort of nose for the race like you're talking about, Fred, in terms of knowing what break is going to go. And uh, we talk about uh, Latvia. He's from Latvia, mm. which is uh, definitely a little obscure for cycling. But um, yeah, it's, he's, he's one a, of my favorite Baltic countries. Yeah, it's, uh, it's it, so it's kind of a wide ranging discussion. But um, Tom's good sport, really fun guy to talk to. And now he's pretty much based here in the U.S. in Boulder mostly. And so he's kind of a adopted U.S. racer, I guess, for some of us. Cool. Well, let's hear it. Uh, let's hear from Tom Squinch. Tom Scunch, welcome to the Velo News podcast. Thank you, thank you. Can you give me a letter grade on how I did pronouncing your name? Uh, I'd say uh, eight out of ten, or letter. Oh, yes, that's not a letter. Uh, <laughs> eight out of ten works. Yeah, huh? Okay, yeah, all right. Uh, that's better than I would have thought. A minus B plus. Do you, if you order takeout, do you have to give them a like a, a pseudonym? Yep. Yeah, always fake name. Just like Joe Smith or something. Yeah. Okay. Well, I've I've done a couple, and actually, yeah, um, Latvians in general have a bit complicated names, so definitely go for uh, a little bit something like John Smith uh, when over here. Sometimes yeah. you got to make sure you get your Chinese takeout or whatever it is you're ordering. <laughs> you don't want it to get lost in the shuffle. Tom's is here. He's going to talk to us about how his first few seasons in the world tour went and what he's got ahead. He is headed off to Europe here in just about a week. We're catching up with him in the end of November. I'm not entirely sure when we're going to publish this interview, but we'll talk about all kinds of things. And Tom's you're headed over there to get ready for the 2018 season. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. So uh, we'll have some aero testing on the track in Germany and then uh, a proper team camp in Sicily. Uh, which where I've never been, so uh, that should be actually pretty fun. Should be nice and warm. Uh, well, warmer than Latvia for sure. Yes, <laughs> definitely. So let's talk about that. So you are Latvian. Give me the brief summary of your path going from being a Latvian cyclist to a French continental team to uh, American continental team in Holowesco Citadel, and then finally here we are. You're on. Uh, you're on the Slipstream team, you're in the World Tour, and you're pretty much based here in Boulder, Colorado. Yeah, more or less. Uh, but while I was uh, still a junior, we'd race with the national team mostly. And uh, the first year out of juniors, under 23s, I was still racing for a Latvian continental team. But that gave me a lot of opportunities to do uh, smaller UCI races, um, under 23 Nation Cups, and that got the attention of a French Conti team. Actually, that year, they were still a um, French amateur team, and they stopped, stepped up the next year and uh, offered me a two-year contract. And I was like, yeah, sweet. I've ridden for a continental team already a year. Why not ride for a French continental team? Just better calendar. So that was 2011, right? Yeah. 2011, 2012, I rode for the French La Palme. And um, it was kind of rough because... Um, you're not, well, I was 19 year old, 19 years old the first year and, uh, racing guys like Tommy Wachler that have raced 19 years, uh, in like French 1.1s every weekend. That was a bit too much for me and, um, just, just a bit too much. So I had to actually, they didn't renew my contract 
And that's the reason I had to sort of go back to Latvia for a year. And I focused mostly on um, Nation Cup races, World Championships, all the under-23 stuff, because it was my last year under-23. And that's how uh, I got the attention of uh, Hincapi. And then you came to Hincapi in 2014, and you were there for two seasons. Yeah, exactly. So uh, 2014, I was the only Latvian on the team. I was actually the only non-English-born uh, speaker on the team, uh, which was kind of rough in the beginning, but uh, my English has never been that bad. So I was uh, fairly, fairly integrated quick. That's good. And so going back for a sec here, those two years on La Palme, were you based in France with that team? Yeah, I lived in Marseille with uh, a Lithuanian that was on the team. And uh, Marseille is not the most fun place to live. <laughs> why why is not, that? It's why not bad. That? Like the weather, weather wise, it's great. Training wise, it's okay. There's plenty of climbing and um, it's actually pretty nice. But just there's a lot of cars, a lot of people. It's very populated, very dense area. And uh, it was uh, not, not super fun. Was it tough to integrate into French culture? Were you sort of isolated? Yeah, for sure. I didn't speak any French before I joined the team. So I took like uh, a little bit of French lessons uh, the year before. And uh, um, yeah, once I got on onto the French team, it was like at training camps, talking more and more. It was a bit easier and I picked up French fairly quick and uh, that definitely helped. And second year, I was actually feeling like, uh, feeling like I can talk to people and not just like stutter words. I feel like that continental level of racing in France has got to be some of the most cutthroat bike racing you could find anywhere yeah for sure and especially because you're racing a lot against uh bigger teams as well you're like the underdogs every single race so um everyone on the team wants to get a result and we had a team manager that wanted all the eight riders in the top six so that was uh interesting i don't understand that, that math doesn't really work for me i'm not a math guy but uh, that's, he he wasn't yeah. either yeah that yeah. seems like that's a very french thing to do though right yeah. just be like come on it's just just do it <laughs> yeah you just have to follow the guy in front and then just pass him <laughs> on the line Easy. Uh, what's what were some of the the lessons you learned from those two years what was i gotta think that it must have been really unpleasant to do those two years like that but at the same time you go away with it go away with some real character building moments no right? for sure uh i actually enjoyed it uh definitely some tough times and uh first time i was living almost by myself uh out of latvia and uh living not coming home for a long period of time but uh the racing was hard and it definitely made me tactic savvy because i was never the strongest guy and i always had to think of how to save energy where and how to actually get a result. So comparing this now to your your stint with Hincapi, so both continental teams, according to the UCI, yeah. I got to think they're worlds apart though, right? It definitely is. Like the racing calendar in France was a lot more dense and you couldn't really focus that much on a single race or something. Whereas in the US, you can actually train and focus on a race. And I was also maybe one of the better guys on the team. So I had my chances more and I could actually know which races, if I am the best that the team will ride for me. Whereas in France, it was just like, yeah, we'll just see how it goes. And uh, you end up riding for someone else always. 
Yeah, definitely. And then so you went to Cannondale, and then for 2018, you're going to Trek Segafredo, which I guess I probably wasn't entirely clear about in the intro. Apologies for that. Uh, you're funny. very polite for not correcting me, though. Oh, no. Well, so as of now. As of now. As of now, it's November. Cannondale. But yeah. yes, it will be Trek. So you've had, I mean, that's, that's kind of a, a pretty quick turnaround in terms of it being two years with Cannondale and now right into Trek. So two different contract negotiations to, to get set up. But how involved are you in those those types of negotiations? Do you have an agent that handles most of it? Is yeah, it, is it do, stressful for you? I do have an agent. I'm uh, trying to be as involved as I can, but at the same time, it's a lot of agent between manager talk. And uh, if a writer has an agent, it's not like you don't have to necessarily uh, be there for the conversations, in the beginning at least. Uh, but obviously, before you sign a contract, you still talk to the manager. You still talk to some DSs and see, feel it out, and see how what they think, what they have in store for you, where they see your place on the team. And uh, yeah, obviously, I like to be involved, but I've never, I've never stressed about a contract because I'm doing this for fun. And uh, even if I don't get a world tour contract, I'll. I'll still race my bike at some level, and obviously now I'll still have two years on track at world in the world tour, and um, even if 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 after that I don't find a world tour team, uh, which would be a really big bummer, I'll still I'll still have those four years that I've been in the world tour. Well, it's still a long ways away. You got yeah. you got two years of track coming up here. Did you talk to any of the current riders on Trek in the early stages of the negotiation or sort of the shopping around phase to confirm that you're look that that it looked right for you? Uh, not really. No. Um, it was kind of last minute. Oh. It was uh, not that. I didn't have that many other options, and uh, I'm not one to. I'm not a rider that would pick and choose his own team because I'm just not that level yet. Okay. And. Uh, yeah, so it was more so. I, I actually liked talking to the DSs, especially Dirk Demol, who was um, who's been watching me for a while, and he was very keen on getting me to the team, and that was kind of what persuaded me. So I'm I'm pretty impressed though that you you seem so relaxed about you know oh yeah I, I'll just get my contract I just want to have fun but it sounds like this was kind of. If if Trek didn't come through, you you'd be you'd be out of a team, right? Uh, very possibly, because it was during the Welta when uh, there were still some uncertainties about uh, Cannondale Draypack, right? And uh, it was kind of that window where it was like, is it going to happen? Is it not going to happen? And I knew that if it wasn't going to happen, then there there would be so many riders on the market that I would definitely not find a place. So when Trek showed interest, I was uh, I was pretty happy and uh, uh but at the same time i was never worried like obviously yeah it would be a huge bummer but there's uh i love cycling and i love riding my bike but there's also other things in life of course definitely yeah. and so in that phase when you were when you were kind of unsure about your future and cannondale was unsure about its future uh, is it, do you have, how much of a feeling of sort of like loyalty do you have to be like, oh, you know, maybe I need to talk to Jonathan Vodders, who's in charge of the Cannondale team before I, you know, go through with this Trek thing, or is, is there, is there much of that, or are you just, just taking whatever you can at when, when it presents itself, knowing, well, knowing that the opportunities are scarce? If, 
if I had a con- contract offer from Slipstream, say in June, I would have signed. No, no questions asked. Cause it was, it's a great team, and I really enjoyed these two years that I've been on the team, and it's an gr- awesome group of guys. And especially this year, we had some newcomers on the team, like Tom Van Asbrook, which who is like such a great sprinter. But at the same time, whenever he's not in there for the sprint, he like digs himself so deep that I'm like, dude, you gotta remember tomorrow's a sprint. You can still win that. And he's like, ah, don't worry about it. You, you guys help me so much. Like I want to help you as much as I can. Is it, uh, that, that, that kind of makes me want to ask how it compares being in a world tour team versus a continental team in terms of the dynamics and the teamwork, the strategy, the tactics. Is it, is it just like kind of a bigger version of a continental team or a pro continental team, or is there a significant change? There definitely is differences, and especially for me as a rider as well. Um, the biggest difference is that on a continental team, there's just less riders, so you pretty much you just know everyone better, and you race almost the same riders every single race. So you have a better family dynamic, sorta, and you know each other in and out which definitely helps in every race scenario that unfolds. And on a bigger team as well, for me, I would not know exactly my calendar and uh, I would be more in limbo. Say I wouldn't know what race I'd be doing like two months out. So I couldn't really prepare for a single event. It would be always like, okay, next next up is Brabant Spiel. Okay, let's try and focus on that for a little bit and just... Uh, there's a bit more uncertainty for me as a rider, but at the same time, I would always get opportunities and I'll always try and use them whenever I could. It's kind of like, you know, the classic fire station where there's just a bunch of guys sitting around a table playing cards, waiting to get the call. And then yeah, they just yeah. hop on their bikes and go off to the race at a moment's Pretty notice. Much, yeah. That'd be Especially kinda... Phil would be able to speak on that. The call up he got to Roubaix was yeah. fairly short. Phil Guyman, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that was... That was quite a wild story back in 2016, yeah. definitely. But that would be kind of cool if you had like a little firehouse with all you guys yeah. ready to go. Especially so, if the, the, we had the like sliding the pole. pole or, yeah, yeah. You can be a little worried up. about injury though. You guys are kind of frail. Just, just put some foam on the bottom. Yeah, just, that's good. Padding. Yeah, 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 good call. Very good. Speaking of that, well, not speaking of firehouse, but speaking <laughs> of getting called up to big races, uh, Volta, Volta a España, your first Grand Tour in 2017. Uh when did you find out you were going to do that? And tell me about that experience of, of racing your first Grand Tour. Uh, so I found out about it. Like, it was always in the plan right after I crashed in California. It was like, okay, now just focus on getting better and, like, getting back on the road. And we'll see. Hopefully you get to do the Welta. And, but you never, at the same time, you never know until, like, two weeks out. Just because things change. Riders get sick and whatnot. Uh, so I pretty much knew after Poland that ended uh i'm not sure when it august ended. yeah yeah and early uh, august yep. yeah yeah mm-hmm. and so yeah two weeks ish yeah and um and yeah i was kind of worried for a little bit but it was really nice and relaxed just because it started out in france and we could take the train there there was not that much travel and there was a bunch of us that were new to the grand tour game and uh but we had like two directors that were amazing and Juan Magarate has done like a hundred of them uh, by now probably. (laughs) 
So he's a uh, yeah, he has the experience to help from the car and make sure you're not digging yourself too deep every day. Yeah, the the Vuelta is is a, such a wild race because on one hand, what I hear from riders is that it's a pretty relaxed atmosphere, and that compared to the the pressure cooker of the Tour or even the Giro, it's a little more laid back in that way. But it's a brutally hard race, like the climbs and everything. They put you through the ringer. Yeah, you definitely don't feel like off the bike. You definitely don't feel too much stress, like more stress than any other race. Uh, but once the racing starts, it's definitely no one holds back for sure. And so what's your personal opinion of the Vuelta's trend towards these shorter mountain stages? It's kind of the race that has kicked off this, this craze and grand tour races. Now tour is doing a super short mountain stage. And it's like, this is the hot thing to do now is, uh, how did that go for you? What, what do you think of these short, uh, mountain stages? I love them. Like it's, they always make for great TV and, in the race, it's like one of the days you definitely look out for and keep your eye on and sometimes dread. But you can't do a Grand Tour with only races like that because you need a build-up. You need those hard, long days where you're like cracking, even though it's just like 200 Ks flat, but just because it's like the sun's shining and everyone's still on the nerves. Um, you definitely need those long days to make this shorter days exciting actually was the Angleru as tough as everyone says it is angry lou i know it was it wasn't that bad i got it wasn't that bad <laughs> uh i was uh by myself and uh if not for the pushes i would probably bonk like two k's from the top <laughs> but uh every time i felt like there were there was a good crowd you could uh try and play with the crowd a little bit and maybe do a wheelie and you'd get a push for like 500 meters. <laughs> nice. Very nice. Uh, good news is uh, no one from the UCI listens to this podcast, so uh, great. you, shouldn't, great you shouldn't get any sort of fine for that. Uh, well, maybe that was just a joke. I don't know. Well, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. just all parody. Yeah. yeah, it's just a joke. Hypothetical. Yeah, I mean, you're 123rd place on GC. You, know, yeah. you might get bumped down to the outside of the top <laughs> 130. You don't want to have that happen now, Toms, do you? Tell me about how these first two years in the world tour have shaped your, uh, just how you see yourself as a rider and what races you like to do and what races you want to focus on. Yeah, I don't think much has changed uh, heading into the world tour. Uh, I was always gonna focus on like one day races that are tough and uh, be that hilly races or windy races or whatever. Uh, but as long as they're hard, as long as everyone's gasped at the end, those races suit me. And um, as well as week-long stage races, I haven't done much time trialing last two years, but uh, that's one of the goals next year is to focus more on the TT bike uh, position and just being able to go for a result in a time trial. That's why I'm doing the aero testing as well. And uh, um Week-long stage races are definitely less predictable, and I'm, as I'm not the strongest guy, I need to use my brain as well, and that's why the week-long stage races suit me a lot better than just 20-minute power climb. Yeah, you did the Ardennes week uh, yeah. in 2017, so Amstel Gold, Flesh Wallon, Liege, Baston Liege. Uh, do you have a favorite of those three? Um, I like Liege. I'd, Flesh is kind of boring, 
just because it's always the final kick to the top. Alex Howes has always told me it's just terrifying coming into that final climb. Yeah. Is, it, is that how you feel about it too? Yeah. Well, I usually not make it to the final climb <laughs> okay. just because I, I've been doing like a lot of work beforehand. Sure. And uh, yeah, actually both the years I've done it, I've always been, uh, I always just like take it easy on the, into the last hill, into the second last hill, I take it easy and then roll to the finish. But um, yeah, flesh is not super exciting. And I think the fans would agree it's not not the most exciting uh, or then of the, of the week. But uh, Amstel is pretty cool. And with the new changes, it was uh, more open. And uh, it was really exciting this year. But at the same time, you never know. It, it's always the riders that make the race exciting. It's not the course. So as long as everyone swears that they'll still attack like 30K out and make it hard from far further out, it'll, it'll still be exciting. And I take it this is kind of what you mean by those really difficult one-day races that get you excited that you like Yeah, exactly. Like and like those are the unpredictable ones. Like right. flesh, you can pretty much guarantee that 99% of the time it'll come to, even more than 99% of the time probably, it'll come to the last kick up the hill and whoever's the strongest by then will win, which does not suit me. Whereas both Liege and Amstel are less predictable and the move could stick at 30K or 20K or 5K. Do you see yourself probably going back to do the Ardennes again in 20, 2018 with your new Trek Segafredo team? That is the plan. And uh, the first year I was on Cannondale, I also got to do um, Turf Flanders, Ooh. which was... Uh, the hundredth edition, which, yeah, which would make it even more special, and uh, that's a race I want to go back to. And I was talking with the team about that, and they said, "Yeah, that could be could be in the cards that I would do both, say E three Ghent, Flanders, and then do the Ardennes." Whew. Yeah, which would be a classics Grand Tour, which would be awesome. <laughs> I I love racing, so I don't mind racing more than. Do you like racing more than you like training? Uh, depends on what kind of training. Because there's, you know, some yeah. cyclists are cyclists. Some cyclists do it because they like the training and the process. Yeah. Some cyclists do it because they just like the racing. And I definitely like the racing more, but that doesn't mean I don't enjoy the training. I really enjoy just going out for long rides and going like 100k away from where I'm staying, and then trying to struggle back. Well, it sounds like you have the right job then, Toms, yeah, because probably. that's pretty much what you have to do all year long for <laughs> yeah, yeah, pro exactly. cyclists. Um, what about uh, Grand Tours? Have you talked to Trek at all about um, which Grand Tours you might do this year, if any? No, I haven't, actually. Okay. I'll probably not do the Giro. No. Um, not, not necessarily want to see Froome win again. So ah, That's right. We're talking to Toms here on the morning of the Giro's 2018 route announcement. And of course, Chris Froome confirming he'll be racing that Giro. It looks like a hard race too. I mean, there's like yeah. some... Yeah, I haven't seen the stages actually. Yeah. But uh, if you do like as many one-day races in the spring, it's kind of hard to do the Giro. Oh, I'm sure you're yeah. cooked by the end of yeah. the Ardennes week if and you're coming into it with all of the other classics. And the Giro, well, during the Giro, the Tour of California is on, and that's always a fun race to come back to, even though I only managed to do one and a half days yes, last year. Right. I, well, this year, I still need to, I guess I need to come back and um, revenge myself. Yes, yes. Of course, um, listeners might remember 
Tom's unfortunately crashed pretty badly, had a severe concussion and yeah. had to withdraw from the race. And it was, it was pretty tough uh, recovery from what I, from what I remember hearing from you. Yeah, it was not, uh, it was not the easiest of crashes. That's for sure. There was a lot of road rash, some broken bones or one broken bone the and, collarbone, and right? several pieces. Um, but it was, it was good. I'm back. So you just had to, I just had to basically take it easy for quite a while to get over yeah. that concussion, yeah. didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. Well, given that you've won two stages of the Tour of California over the course of your career, I have a feeling there's 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 light at the end of the tunnel, and you, you'll you'll be able to come back with guns blazing. Yeah, exactly. Well, the 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 bummer about the crash was that it was like I was going for the hat trick, right? And I was not too far off because obviously in that break though I was I would not have to work because they come came from the back and we had Talansky chasing so. It was uh, definitely a great opportunity, but sometimes it doesn't happen. That is true. That is true. Well, we'll look forward to watching you in the Amgen Tour of California here in 2018 in your new Trek Segafredo kit, as I've Yeah, now. well, we'll see <laughs> what the kit looks like. Hopefully, well, it I looks, guess... It looks pretty good, usually. They usually yeah. do a good, good yeah, job they, with it. The they black do a good and red it's, yeah, classic. Yeah, it's very classic. And maybe it'll be... It'll definitely be a change from wearing green argyle to bit something a bit more classic as a fan and as a as a as a cycling journalist it always like trips me up when i when it switches over and you see the riders in yeah. their new kits is it as a rider is that is that weird for you too like maybe your first race of the season you're like oh yeah that's right i forgot he uh went to cannondale i forgot he switched to trek i forgot does it does it mess with you it does it definitely does and it does actually twice a year the second time is uh after nationals when oh yeah like, the national champions i thought he was the national cha- oh yeah he's not the national champion anymore you almost like need to write it down on your stem or something to yeah. make sure you don't miss an important breakaway yeah. before you know it you're like oh crap there goes john <laughs> degenkolb he's up the road how did that happen oh man yeah he has the champs jersey. Yep, the champions jersey. That's always a tricky one too. Yeah. Um, speaking of speaking of that, you so so in Latvia, you I'm pretty sure you have been a Latvian champion at one point or another, haven't you? Not elite, no. Oh, not elite. Okay. I've been uh, mountain bike junior mountain bike champ, uh, junior TT champ, um, maybe something else. I don't know. Okay. All right. Well, so what's the scene like in Latvian cycling? Tell me about. I'm just, yeah, start from square one with me. Yeah. I really don't know. Well, as there's not that many cyclists in general, um, the road scene is kind of, it's not as big. And there's not a lot of road races for, like, elite field. Uh, but juniors do get their fair fair share amount. And so do, like, cadets or under-17s or however you want to call them. Um they get they have a nice series going for them and it's the federation that puts it on and uh from there you pick the best riders and go to like international races all, all across europe which is fairly easy you can just jump in a van and drive down it is kind of a long drive but you can always do that and as a junior you don't really care as long as you get to race uh but there are a lot of mountain bike races like we got these uh mountain bike marathon series um that are seven stages throughout the summer and every every race there's like two thousand people wow. on the start line two thousand people yeah and it's like mostly latvians yeah well pretty much all of them wow and it's like 
for a population of two million, that's that's fairly good. And so, in general, uh, do Latvians follow cycling? Is it a, is it an important professional sport for fans? Uh, definitely not the general public, but uh, the cyclists, whoever rides those like mountain bike races, or we have this one event um, first weekend of September every year. Uh, that is a very hist- history-based event that's been run since, I don't know, for 50 years or more um, that attracts like 5,000 people. That And there you have like both road, both mountain bike, and like everyone rides. And whoever does that, they do follow the sport closely. But it's definitely not a mainstream sport. So... Just for general Latvian sport fans, most popular sport, what is it? Soccer? Ice hockey. Ice hockey. For fans, yeah. Ice hockey is the most popular sport yeah. for fans. So that's- For uh, player numbers, it would be definitely soccer, yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. Just because it's easier to play. Yeah, of course. You need less equipment. Right, stuff. right. But but for people tuning in on TV, yeah. they're going to watch, is it like NFL or is it KHL? Uh, or? Yeah, mostly KHL, obviously. Yeah. And well, everyone closer. follows world champs and... Um, any like, like national team uh, games, but also there's a bunch of people that follow the NHL because we've got um, Zemgus Girgensons playing in Sabres, if I'm correct. Wow, and I thought your name was hard to pronounce. <laughs> yeah. That is, that's a whole nother level. Uh, well, there's an, uh, another guy uh, whose last name is Gudlievskis, <laughs> uh, who plays, actually he changed teams, so I don't remember. He was uh, the second, or like he was in the, in between the NHL and AHL uh, right. for Lightning okay. for a while there. Okay. So and then so back to back to cycling for fans in Latvia. Is it uh, is it like equivalent to uh, the U.S. level of fan interest for cycling, or is it higher? Yeah, probably similar. Actually, similar. Yeah, because yeah. okay. U.S. like it feels like in the U.S. there's more fans, but obviously uh, there's more people, but not maybe not on the general population. Yeah. Is Latvia a good place for just riding in general? Is it should I should I go on a vacation there? Go on a riding vacation there? You like flats? Is yeah. it all flat? Yeah, pretty much. Really? Yeah. Oh, no kidding. We got like one climb that's one K at nine percent. Okay. That's pretty much it. Yeah, that's everyone much. goes there. All right. Yeah, it's a little <laughs> if crowded. See, little if, you, crowded. if you want to see all the cyclists, you just go there and it's pretty much I see. I see, yeah. I see. And there there are a few Latvians in the Pro Peloton. There's actually um actually a rider on the uh Holowesco team, which formerly the Hincapi team. Uh Fluxes. Thank you. There we go. So Tom's, are you kind of are you involved with helping riders? come over to the U.S. to, to step up their racing? To, are, you, are you kind of blazing a path for them? Are they, are they reaching out to you for help? Yeah, I definitely try. And uh, not just maybe not just in, in the U.S. I definitely have still plenty of contacts in Europe. And I hope I've helped both uh, Latvians and Estonians. But there's not much I can do. It's always up to them anyways. And as long as they're, they show that they have results and that they're not, um, that they're just like good people on the bike. Like we had uh, another guy racing for action oh, okay. uh, last year, uh, Chris Nalance, who rides for um, Cycling Academy right now. Ah, yes. And uh, he pretty much won Tour of Portugal, in my eyes, at least. He finished top 10. That's, yeah, it's a hard race. Yeah. Very uh, hilly race. And uh, I was trying to get another guy up. Uh, 
into the U.S. scene, but he ended up finding a team on uh, finding a spot on One Pro Cycling. Right, the Irish team. British. British team. One Pro. One Pro. I'm Conti mix, team. I'm getting to mix up. Aqua Blue. I'm getting to mix yeah. up with Aqua Blue. Yeah. That's my bad. Yeah, they're still Conti. Sorry, British fans. I love you still. <laughs> they're they're just the Conti team, but uh, the Latvian Continental team is like stepping down a bunch, and uh, a lot of those guys are still on the hunt. That's the team you used to be on? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And Anch, and pretty much everyone. Right. I'd imagine with being they, a small yeah, country, there's yeah. not many options yeah. there. Yeah. All right. Let's, uh, Tom's, let's wrap this up with a little bit of a, a, a lesson on uh, how to speak Latvian. I think this would be useful for all of our listeners. Give me some basic um, cycling vocab. So if we ever Ooh. are riding bikes with Latvians, uh, like how do you tell someone to pull through? Device strada. Device strada. Yeah. Okay. All right. That'd be a good one. Uh, what's the Latvian word for like, for, for a Fred, you know, someone who's a super just <laughs> oh, kind of. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, Fred Dreyer, our, our <laughs> own Fred here at Velo News, he was talking to Matthew Heyman last spring, former uh, Perry Bay winner. And apparently, Australians, their term for a Fred is a Hubbard. Hmm. So I like that one. But is there, is there a Latvian equivalent? There is a Latvian equivalent that everyone grows up hearing, and it's Chinese. Chinese. Which is also the same name for a teapot. A teapot. Electric teapot. Yeah. So you're calling someone a teapot. Yeah. I like that. That's really good. Uh, let's see. What else? What other, what other good ones are there? Is it, um, we probably shouldn't Some do point. any swear words. Keep yeah. this PG-13. Yeah. Um, do you like, do you miss it? Does it, is it nice to speak Latvian once in a while if you see your friends or something? Yeah, it is definitely. Yeah. And, uh, it's funny, like, especially Anch, he, he has a bit of a thicker accent than I do speaking English, but whenever he goes back to Latvia, if he's spent a bunch of time in the U S his first words come out of his mouth, just like with a, an American Latvian accent, which is so funny. <laughs> it's like, yeah, when you have, well, I don't know if you can relate, but you know, if you have a, like a roommate and, uh, you, they're from like Boston or, yeah. or from the South or something, and they pick up the phone and talk to their parents, <laughs> they instantly yeah, snap yeah. into their, their, their accent from their home native land. I thought of a good, uh, good cycling term. Oh yeah. Let's hear uh, if you get a puncture, Ooh, it's yes. called protis, 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 protis. It's a lot of the pronunciation's tricky. Yeah. I feel like I'd need the phonetic version. I would not, when, when it's just written down in the normal spelling, it would just, yeah, no, my brain would no. switch off. Yeah. Well, Tom's, thank you for being so generous with your time. No, Good no luck problem. in Europe as you switch over to your new Trek Segafredo team. You go to the wind tunnel, you go to all kinds of places all to get prepped and we'll be watching you as you try to do the, the full gamut of your spring classics this year. <laughs> Looking forward to that. Yeah, thanks. It should be good. All right, well, um, safe travels. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, okay, well, great chat with Tom Scoinch Spencer. I I think he's going to have some other uh, big results this year. I think I'm looking at Tour California, maybe some of these big one days. A guy with his engine and his smarts, I think he can really make it happen. Yeah, I, well, I think it'd be fun to see because he's always an animator. All right, well, before we wrap it up this week, let's get into some off the front, off the back we had a number of races and storylines come out this week in the world of cycling. 
And as always, we need to determine what's hot off the front and what's not off the back. So Spencer, do you want to lead us out into what is hot and what is not? Yeah, I can do that for you, Fred. All right, what's off your front? I Off my front, yes. <laughs> I'll start off with hometown heroes off the front because Gonzalo Nahar won the overall in Tour de San Juan. He is an Argentinian cyclist racing on a, a little lowly continental team there based in Argentina that is sponsored by the government and public employees of San Juan. So he's, he's, a, he's a man of the people. And uh, he put in quite a blistering attack on that Alto de Colorado stage, putting like two minutes into our old friend Oscar Sevilla. Mm. So, huh. Yeah. Let's uh yeah, well let's hope we see more from him but uh let's hope it's uh yeah. <laughs> Off the back for me is going to be cyclocross tire technology because lots of people were sliding out and crashing at that Hooger Heide World Cup and I'm thinking we need to take it take it to the next level here and get these get these racers some tires that aren't going to totally fail on them and have them sliding across this muddy terrain like that because it was it was a that one hill feature was pretty gnarly I thought. Yeah, ouch. Um, all right, I'll go next. Off the front, uh, tour, to, tour contenders on the cobblestones. Oh, yeah. So we learned this week that Vincenzo Nibali is going to race the Tour of Flanders, which is awesome because I love it whenever uh, Grand Tour guys, for whatever reason, go line up on the cobblestones. Nibali, my guess is that he is trying to get his skills down for this year's Tour de France, which features that long, nasty stage with tons of pavé. Um, the other one is that Roman Bardet went and did a pre-ride session on the cobblestones up there in northern France, and we had this just amazing photo come out of it of a very miserable-looking Roman Bardet riding over what looks to be not just cobblestones, but like the muddiest, dirtiest, like... George Hincapi 2001 Paris-Roubaix uh, version of the cobblestones, and he just looks really bummed out. I'm calling it right now. Bardet's going to win the tour. If he's motivated enough to go out there in that terrible weather and ride those horrible cobblestones like that, then he knows something that we don't, and it means his form is going to be dead on for that tour this year. Well, if you remember last year uh, when he won that stage of the Paragoods, he revealed that he had like taken a vacation to Paragoods and was just hanging out in his condo and riding this stage and doing all this recon the year before. So maybe he's doing a little vacation to northern France in uh, the wintertime. It seems like kind of a n not a great place to go for your winter vacation. I think I would prefer like a ski hill. Yeah. Um, off the back... I'm not going with tire technology. I'm going with carbon wheel technology in those cyclocross races because if you go watch the highlights, or should I say the lowlights of the Hooger Heider race, there is a clip of some poor guy just augering so hard on that aft camber descent, and his wheel hits a rut just just tacos like it's a paper plate. Like like it's just like a like a chinette paper plate that you're squeezing in your hands. And so, you know, I know there's been all of these, there's all of this advancement and all of these, this philosophy about racing with carbon rims, you know, they're faster for you, but Hey, you heard it here, folks. I think you just need steel wheels, just like heavy metal steel wheels. If you're going to race cyclocross, that's just the only way it can work. Spencer is just, <laughs> just shaking his head in disapproval oh, at my friend. off the back. Yeah, uh, cool. Carbon wheels are fine, but this guy really ruined his. He's going to so. need a new one. He's going to need a new one. Yep. Hope he gets the warranty on that. Uh, Dane, 
do you have any off the fronts and off the backs this week? Yeah, let's go with uh, off the front. Giacomo Nizzolo coming back, winning a bike race, uh, won a stage at the Vuelta San Juan. Uh, if if you are a uh, a follower of mine on Twitter, or if you've ever listened to me uh, uh, commentating, you know, podcasts and that kind of thing, you'll probably know I'm sort of an unabashed Giacomo Nizzolo fan because he's just a delightful person, and I really like talking to him. And uh, he's had a rough go of it the last a year and a half. He had some knee issues that totally derailed his last season, and it was tough to watch. Kept getting back on the bike, and it just wasn't working out. So to go out there and win a, a race in January, I think that bodes well for this season. Hopefully he'll get back on track, and maybe he'll finally win that Giro stage that's been eluding him for, for years now. Uh, let's say off the back, I'm going to go with uh, race design down under. I've heard some talk that they, they might introduce a team time trial to the Tour down under boo. next year. Yeah, definite boo. I mean, if you're going to if you're going to introduce anything to that race, it should be another climb or two, not a team time trial. If you could offer one way to make a not that exciting race more boring, it would be adding a team time trial. I can't think of any way to make a race more boring than adding a team time trial stage. So that's a definite off the back for me. Ooh, scorching. What about yeah. nine laps up Old, Willing- Old Willunga Hill? I'd be okay with that. You know, that, that, that would at least, I think, increase the the likelihood that you're not going to finish a race on countback, which is what we saw last time around. So oh, anything but a team time, bro. Or hammer hammer race style, where they just like have some weird convoluted points. Hey, that's fine by me. And they, yeah. But they, then they go up Bologna Hill like a bajillion times. Or, guys, let's not forget they could just add a stage with attacking kangaroos. Well, we would love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at webletters at competitorgroup.com. We'll also post links to the stories we talked about today on VeloNews.com. Subscribe to the VeloNews podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And while you're there, please leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of VeloNews on Facebook at facebook.com slash Magazine, And follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash VeloNews. The VeloNews podcast is produced by VeloNews, which is owned by the Pocket Outdoor Media. The thoughts and opinions expressed in the VeloNews podcast are those that the individual and as always we leave you with the brooklyn boogaloo blowout playing the bernard pretty classic soul drums <laughs>